Engaging Leader, Episode 160, Building a High-Performing and Health-Driven Culture, featuring John Burke, CEO of Trek Bikes. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. I'm really excited. Today, we're going to be talking to the CEO of Trek Bikes. This is a company that I have admired ever since I first got into triathlons back in 2009. But the roots of the company actually go all the way back to 1975 when it was started by uh, John Burke's father, Dick Burke. Uh, This is a company that he started in a barn in southern Wisconsin. And he, uh, from the beginning, instilled simple principles that continue to guide the company as it has grown into a billion-dollar worldwide brand. Build things that last and leave a legacy of positive change. Dick's son, John Burke, began working at Trek in 1984, and he's been president of the company since 1997. Today, we're going to dig into what makes Trek different from other high-end bike makers. Uh, As we look at how Trek got started, how John joined Trek and eventually came to lead the company, and we're going to talk about some things that John's done differently. Um, why he decided at one point he should do something to make not just the the company better, not just his community better, but tr- to try to make the whole country better. We're going to look at the problems and solutions approach that John teaches as one way to create a high-performing team. And what John and the Trek Bikes uh, company do to make sure they have the best people and how they create a positive culture, including developing their leaders. And we'll take a, toward the end, we're going to take a close look at why John decided um, several years ago, I think maybe like 13 or 14 years ago, to create a culture of health within Trek, how they did it, and what the results have been since. John, uh, as I said, is the president of Trek Bikes. He's also the author of two books, 12 Simple Solutions to Save America is the most recent one, and his first book was One Last Great Thing. If you're interested in seeing just a snapshot of the culture at Trek Bikes, I'm going to put a link in our show notes to their recruiting video. It's a, it's a great example of a fun recruiting video that provides a very appealing view into the culture of the company. So you can check that out. It's on YouTube. It's called Let Me Show You Our Bicycle Company, and I'll put a link in our show notes as well. So without further ado, let's get the interview started. John Burke, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, I need to confess a couple things right up front. Um, I, well, first of all, while I'd love to brag about being a fellow triathlete and cyclist, the truth is that uh, John is on a higher level than me, and he's finished two Ironmans as well as the Boston and New York marathons. John, do you have any events planned for this season? You know, I do. We uh, do a race. My wife and I do a race in France, a bike race. They, it's called the Etape de Tour. So it's on the hardest, usually the hardest stage of the Tour de France. So it's usually 110 miles and there's a number of mountain climbs and it's a long day on the bike. And we've done that ride. Um, this will be the 12th year in a row. So we'll do that one. And then one of our favorites is there's something called the Ride Across Wisconsin, 
and that's 178 miles in one day. So we'll do that one too. Those are two big ones for the year. Wow. That's amazing. It sounds grueling, but what a cool thing to do with your wife. Yeah, she's uh, great fun. She's an awesome rider, and she's a great mechanic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the second confession is, although I am a longtime fan of Trek, the bike I use for triathlons is not a Trek, uh, simply because the bike shop that I prefer focuses on a different brand. But, John, what would a good Trek representative say to persuade me to switch over to Trek? Oh, that's a really good question. So, one of the things... We were looking at the owner's manual maybe six or seven years ago, and it's this long legal document, and I said, I don't like the legal document. I want to write a nice owner's manual that people understand, and so we kind of had a compromise, and I said, I'm going to write the introduction, and I did, and it says something like this. It says, thanks for buying a Trek. Welcome to the Trek family. If you ever have a problem with your Trek, see your Trek retailer and they'll take care of you. And if they don't take care of you, call Trek and we'll take care of you. And if Trek's not taking care of you, here's my email address (laughs) and I'll make sure you're taken care of. And so I can always tell you when the start of the bike season is because I'll start to get emails. (laughs) But, and I, and I met a guy, I was at the tour of California yesterday who came up to me and he goes, I just want to thank you so much for taking care of my bicycle issue. And I remembered what the issue was. It was like three years ago and it was a simple issue, but he wasn't getting the help he needed and we took care of it. But I don't know any other consumer product company, whether it's a car company, a computer company, or a bike company, where that company is so dedicated to you having a great experience that you can call the company and if that doesn't work out, you can just send a note to the guy who owns the company and he'll take care of you. And the thing at Trek is we make the best bikes in the world, but I think what really sets us apart from every other company is we'll make sure that you are a very happy Trek customer. That is powerful. That's amazing. An amazing story. I think that's a great answer. (laughs) Well, tell us the story about how Trek got started. You know, my dad was, uh, He was an overweight guy who smoked a pipe in the early 70s. And then all of a sudden, Frank Shorter won the Olympic marathon in 1972. And that kind of changed him. And he got into running. And he was one of the first guys in our area who got into running. And everybody thought he was crazy. And uh, he ended up meeting this guy in the early 70s who was in the bike business. And this guy, his name was Bevel Hogg, convinced my dad there was a future for a high-end made-in-America bike company. And uh, my dad was in the distribution business, and he was always looking for new ideas. And so he started Trek. And the company grew and grew um, until about 1984. And uh, that's when I joined the company. I'd graduated from school. And uh, that's when I got involved. So what's the story of once you got involved, how did you eventually come to lead the company? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was when I got involved in 1984, Trek was doing really well. And my dad was spending the majority of his time on his other businesses. And almost from the day I started, the company went into a massive tailspin. 
And so I was a sales rep and I called on customers in the Rocky Mountain area and I would drive from bike shop to bike shop and hear about how horrible my family's company was. Mm. And in retrospect, that was the greatest education anyone could ever have. And that, you know, really um, gave me some background and just some foundation that what I really cared about was taking care of the customer. And I said, if I was ever going to be put in a position of responsibility, you know, the first thing I'd do is I'd make sure we were taking care of the customer. And so Trek got into a bunch of problems in 85 and 86. And um, my father gave me a call and he put me in charge of sales. I was 24 years old. And I think he kind of looked at the bench and I was the only guy sitting there and he put me in the game. <laughs> and, you know, from there, you know, I just, you know, I worked with an amazing group of people. We were a young team. They called us the Cub Scouts and, you know, we built that business from there. So what's, uh, what's was the, the growth like? Um, what, what kind of numbers in terms of number of employees did you have there in 84 or so? And what did the... What did the uh, growth curve look like afterwards? Well, you know, I th when I started, the business was like $20 million, and then it went backwards. I think it probably hit a low of like $16 million a year, two years later. And then, you know, the, the great thing about Trek, it was a great brand. People loved the idea about the company, you know, making bikes in the U.S. and higher-end bikes. And it just needed the execution and the blocking and tackling. And, you know, my father made a bunch of management changes. He came out and ran the company and it took off from there. And, you know, we had a really young team of people selling and man, we, we made things happen. And all of a sudden we started, you know, growing the business by 30, 40, 50% a year for maybe five, six, seven years in a row. And all of a sudden you had a we went from $20 million to $200 million pretty quick. And then, you know, that business grew from there. And today it does, you know, does around a billion dollars in business around the world. And that's, that's kind of how it started. Fantastic. Now, you've written two books so far. Uh, the first is One Last Great Thing, which goes deeper into your father's story and the building of Trek. What is it about that story that deserves an entire book? Well, the entire book is 124 pages, so it's uh, it's a short read. You can read it in a in a weekend, or you can read it in a night. But I was my father uh, was 73 years old when he died, and he was fit as a fiddle, and he had a valve problem, and uh, he decided to get a new valve put in. And as he said to me, you know, they tell me there's only one problem out of a hundred and he was the one. Mm. And, uh, you know, he f was in the hospital for 88 days before he died. And he, at his 70th birthday party, he gave this amazing speech and he stood up and he pulled out some yellow legal pages in front of his family. And he gave this, you know, 30 minute speech at his own birthday party and it was phenomenal and i remember how good it was because i left for europe the next day and on the flight i wrote down everything that i could remember from his speech <laughs> and in that speech he said 
I've been lucky enough to do a lot of great things in my life, but I know I have one last one left in me. He goes, I'm not sure what it is, but I've got one more thing. And then through his journey in the, in the hospital, his last 88 days, I came to understand that the last great thing he did was the way he died. And the character, the dignity, um, the love that surrounded this man in those final 88 days was off the charts. And so after he died, I started writing a book just for my two kids because I wanted them to always understand their grandfather's life. And when I finished it, there were a couple of people who saw it and they go, wow, this is really, really good. And so that's when I decided to turn it into a book. What was the impact on on track and the, the culture uh, following your, your dad's passing? That's a really good question. You know, I think um, I think the honest answer is zero. Is there wasn't an impact, and that's a real tribute to the way he managed the company and his leadership skills. Is that he built the company to last, and it wasn't like a panic like the big guy's gone it was you know i had been running the company for 10 years and you know he and i would communicate frequently but you know he let me do my thing and uh he also he wasn't a micromanager there's a couple of things that were important to him and he was he was pretty clear about it that's that's pretty amazing for a a family-led company to have that kind of leadership where it's not so personality driven uh, values driven I, I can tell from from the way you guys lead the, lead the company but what, so what are the, what's an example of one or two things that was really important to your dad yeah I think one of the th- one of the things that was really important to him was taking care of the customer is just listening to the customer um, you know back in 1986 that's the way he turned the company around is he was really good about um, listening to the customer and he was really, really good at being humble is the, he was a professional at asking questions. Um, and you know, what don't you like about track? How can the product be improved? I mean, that's what he wanted to talk about. He didn't want to talk about how great things were that never really appealed to him. John, your newest book is 12 simple solutions to save America. Tell us about the day when you came to the decision to write this book. Okay, so I'm at, uh, my son was graduating from Marquette, which is the same school my father graduated from. And uh, it was quite a big moment because Richie was going to graduate. Super good kid, but not the best student. Neither was his father or his grandfather. So... (laughs) I was looking forward to this day for a number of reasons. And one of my favorite authors is David McCullough, the great American historian. And I've read a bunch of his books and I, he was the key, the commencement speaker. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah. I love, I love David McCullough's books too. That would be fantastic to get to hear him speak. Right. So I've been to some loser graduations where, you know, (laughs) including my own, where I can't even tell you who the, who the commencement speaker was. So, all of a sudden, McCulley gives us fabulous commencement address on the value of reading. And readers are leaders, and you are what you read. And I mean, I was soaking it all in. 
and he gets to the end and McCullough must have been at that time, you know, in, in his, his uh, early eighties and he gets to the end and he peers out over the audience and he says this, he says for, for his closer, he looks out and he says this, and at some point do something for your country. And so that stuck in my mind. And that night, as we drove home to Madison, I thought to myself, what could I do for my country? The country's been so good for me, and I've always been interested in American history. And I thought what I could do for my country is I could write a book because I just finished that book about my father, and I had enjoyed doing that. I could write a book about what I consider to be the biggest problems in America and really simple solutions on how those problems could be solved. So if you write a book like that, you're obviously going to cross some of those lines where you're talking politics and uh, that, yeah. that can get really divisive. I guess the first thing I'm curious about is how did people in Trek Bicycle react to that? Um, did that cause any any waves in the company? You know, that's a really good question, and it did, because, you know, the nation's so divided, and, you know, one of the good things is I'm not a Republican or I'm not a Democrat. I'm just an independent, and I'm just somebody who cares about the country. And, you know, much of the book, you can't figure out, you know, some of the some of the solutions people would say are liberal solutions and some of the solutions people would say are conservative solutions. So when, when people stepped back after reading the book, you know, we said, well, is this going to hurt Trek? You know, the, the consensus was, was no, that it wouldn't. And the other thing is just one of the things that I learned from my dad is we just do the right thing. And if you have something to say, say it. So put the book out there. And it, it is written in a very um, sensitive, thoughtful, um, non-divisive way. The tone is respectful and you're inviting people to disagree with you. Uh, so th I think that, that certainly helps. And I probably, almost anybody, when you read through the book, they're going to they're gonna agree with some of what you, like some of your ideas, others I think are, they're going to find challenging. So I'll, I'll tell you one, one thing that I think I did well was for each one of the 12 solutions, I start the chapter out and I say, here are all the facts. And these are facts which can't be challenged from good sources backed up by um, good research and said, here are all the facts. And a friend of mine read the book, super smart guy. He reads the book and he comes back and he says, I want to let you know that I agree with every point in the book. And he says, the point is, is that you did such a good job of laying out all the facts. And if you put a bunch of smart people in a room and you give them all the facts, 90% of the time they'll come to the same conclusion. And I think what we lack in this country is we lack the facts is that people are in this big struggle between Republicans and Democrats and beating the hell out of each other. And nobody's focusing on the country and nobody's focusing on, here are the facts, how can we solve the problem? It's also interesting that you didn't just write a book, you were thoughtful about how to present those facts. There's lots of great visuals. You obviously took the time to think, what, what's the right way to show this data 
in a way that's going that people can visually digest. I, was that a thoughtful uh, decision you made? You know, I love to read, and I think one of the mistakes authors make is they write 500-page books that could have been <laughs> written in 220 pages. And I think that turns people off, and I think that limits the audience. And one of the things I wanted to do is because America is a complicated country, and many of our problems are complex, what I wanted to do was simplify it so that anybody could pick up the book and read it. And one of the great I've – gotten, <clears throat> I've gotten so many – um, great reviews. And one of the best ones I got is from somebody in my neighborhood who came up and said, you know, I love that book. My daughter and I read the book together <laughs> and I wanted to write it with bullet points and simplicity and simple graphs and pictures so that people could take something, you know, something like the defense budget and they could understand it. Yeah. The other thing I like is in, in 12 Simple Solutions, the book, you follow a, a problems and solutions approach. Uh, can you explain that approach you take and whether that's an approach you teach in business for your team at Trek as well? Yeah, I always like to, there's a couple of things I always like to do is one is I always like to define what the problem is. Like too often when you're trying to solve something, before you solve it, you should really figure out, okay, let's really define what, what problem we're trying to solve here. So whatever it is that we're dealing with that track, I always like to put up here, are all the facts and here's the problem we're trying to solve. And this is where we're trying to get to just so everybody, before we start kicking ideas around, just so everybody knows where we're at. And so I kind of did the same thing here in the book as I said, okay, here's a problem. And Here's why it's a problem. And then I list out what the solutions are. That I, I'm trying to remember what the quote is. Um, uh, some smart person said something like, if, if you asked me, a, a, if you asked me a, a question and gave me only an hour to answer, come up with a, with a solution, I'm going to spend 90% of that time trying to clarify the exact question so the but anyway, I'm not even giving doing justice to the quote, <laughs> but the yeah. idea of 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 true defining the problem very intentionally that is that is powerful just to bring clarity about what we're trying to solve in the first place, right? And as a country, we have you know it's such an amazing country in so many different respects, but as a country, we have some serious problems, and you know the problem we have is you know the conversation really gets into meaningless discussions about nothing instead of focusing on here's some real issues what's the issue what's the problem and what are our options to solve it yeah it, it quite, usually degenerates into sound bites and ad hominem attacks yeah yeah and and a lot of times i think in the business world if we don't take the time to truly define the problem and then provide the facts and with a critical eye, look at, look at the facts. Uh, people end up chasing their tails um, or, or just being paralyzed with in the ambiguity. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things also is I always like try to focus on 30,000 feet first is to solve a problem 
let's let's take care of the big things first. What are the big things that we agree on before you jump into the weeds? And sometimes, especially in business, people love to jump right into the weeds. And I, I'm always like, whoa, <laughs> I don't, first let's solve it up here and then, then we can jump into the weeds, but not, not now. In the book, you focus a lot on ideas for creating a high performance government, which I think a lot of people would say that's an oxymoron. But some of those ideas obviously came from your experience with creating a high performing team at Trek. What, what are some of the ideas that would work for business leaders? For creating a high performance business? Yes. Oh, I think I think the biggest one is just making sure you got the best team on the field. And you know, that one to me just time and time and time again, it just it really comes down to do you have the best team on the field? And if you have the best team on the field, you'll do very well. I've never seen a business flounder that that has a great team. I've never seen it. Hmm. And I've seen a lot of businesses flounder, but those are people, those are teams that either don't have a very good team on the field or they've got a lousy leader. So where do you start with that? Where do you get your good people? You know, one of the things I think that's really important is the culture of the company is because people choose where they want to work and they have options. And, you know, just like when you're producing a product, you're producing a product to be competitive in the marketplace. People have options. And the same thing is when people want to choose where to go to work, they have an option on where do they want to work. And I think one of the great things we've been able to do at Trek is we have a saying, right people in the right seats of an awesome bus. And we focus on creating an awesome bus. And the bus is Trek. And so what can we do to make Trek this incredible place for people to work? And that's profit sharing. That's an ESOP. That's incredible mountain bike trails. That's an amazing cafe. It's great workspaces. The list goes on and on. And we really focus on that. And when you do that, you'll get great people. How much of the that culture building comes from, I guess, you personally or in, in terms of face-to-face um, talking to employees or managers? You know, I, I, I do my part and I set the pace. Um, but it's up to every leader in the business to, you know, create a great environment for their employees. And, you know, we do this, we do something called great places to work study every year. So I can tell you what tracks results are and you can break those down by leader, by manager, and they vary widely. And that is because the leaders vary and, you know, that's something that we really focus in on because we really believe the happier the employees, the better the business is going to do. So I can, I can set the pace, but it's really important at the grassroots level how well our leaders are doing. And what, uh, any tips for how to develop those leaders? You know, I think one of the things is just somebody once said that the University of Michigan did a great study on why people fail in their jobs. And they spent a lot of time and a lot of money and they came to a simple conclusion that people failed in their jobs because A, they didn't know what the job was and B, they were never trained to do it. And I think that's true of any position. I think just making sure people know exactly this is what the job is. 
and this is what you need to do to succeed at the job. And I think when it comes to the values of the company, it's saying, hey, letting everybody know these are the values of the company, and this is what is the expectation of anybody who works here. And I'll just give you one example. I track one of them is, is having a high energy level. And I've always believed that they're either, whenever anybody walks into a meeting or they walk into a situation, they're either adding energy or they're sucking energy out. Hmm. And we want people who add energy. You mentioned the Great Place to, Great Place to Work study, which for any listeners that don't know, that's, there's a, a company called the Great Place to Work Institute that does that study every year. And I'm curious, John, do, do you, um, so you participate in that yearly and you get the data uh, and then are you basically on your own to um, figure out what to do with that? Or do you take, make use of the Institute's consulting or coaching services as well? You know, I think we're on our own. And I think that's good because we're the ones who need to run the business. But, you know, if you, if you get the data and the data says, and we've had this situation where the data says just in this area of the business, you're 30 points below average. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and then, you know, it's just awesome because then all of a sudden you can just laser into that and you can figure out what, you can figure out what the problem is and you can come up with a solution. And we've, We've made more changes based on that survey, which have really helped our business. Do you have an example to share? Well, I'll just say that one area of the business performed very poorly on the Great Places to Work study, and we took a look at it, and we, re- we replaced the leadership and a couple other positions, and we put a rock star in that position who has an incredible amount of energy, and all of a sudden, the results, they've gone through the roof. Yeah, that's great. So, and that, that gets back to that whole thing is it's all about people. But, you know, the thing about people is that it's really easy to say it's all about people. <laughs> but the hardest part is dealing with the problems when you have them. Because every business has people issues. Yeah. Do Have you had any concerns with, let's say, people skewing the results um, uh, when, the, when you do the, the study f- that a manager might try to get employees to rate him or her well to avoid that kind of situation? That person would have a very short lifespan at track. <laughs> so it would just be pretty obvious in your culture that that kind of behavior would, would not stay hidden. No. Yeah. No, that, that would be a quick exit. <laughs> Uh, tell, can you tell us about the day when you decided to create a culture of health within Trek? You know, I was on the President's Council for Physical Fitness and Sports. And so I'd spent a bunch of time at Health and Human Services, and I'd really become aware of what poor health our country has and how it's getting worse with time. And all of a sudden, it was in a span of two months, we had three incidents. We had a truck driver driving across Iowa who had a massive heart attack, and he would never return to work again. Mm. And he loved his job. We had a woman in our international department who had taken advantage of our health program at Trek, and 